0: Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world with your hosts, David Yeh and Panithu Padia. Before we get into the episode, we have a free MSE company database categorized by industry sector, location, as well as internship and full-time titles. So you can find that link in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get started.
1: Our sponsor today is Johnson Matthew. Are you a material scientist or engineer who wants to be part of the drive for a world that is healthy and cleaner, both for today and for future generations? By understanding the relationship between a material structure and its physical properties and chemical behavior, material scientists and engineers at Johnson Matthey Matthew develop sustainable technologies that are catalyzing the zero transition in transport, chemicals, and energy. They design porous materials for catalyst supports for emission control systems that remove harmful emissions produced by diesel and gasoline engines. They innovate new compositions for catalysts at the heart of the hydrogen fuel cells in trucks and buses. And they also develop new corrosive resistant reactors for processes that enable the production of sustainable chemicals and fuels. To find out more, visit matthew.com. That's M A T T H E Y.com. Johnson Matthew. Inspiring science, enhancing life.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the It's a Material World podcast. I'm Faneeth. I have my co host David here. How's it going, David?
1: It's great. I'm super excited to be here today. And the episode we're going to share today is really exciting. We sit down with the SVP of materials research of Carbon 3D and What are you looking forward to?
0: (laughs) I was just fascinated really with like all of the sporting goods applications of their technology. So they make the mid soles for Adidas running shoes. They also make inserts for Rawlings baseball gloves. So I played baseball for like 15 years up until the end of high school. And so that was just cool kind of just to see the sporting goods industry Applications of three D printing, but yeah, it was just really fascinating to hear about the technology. He's the senior vice president of materials, so he actually gets pretty technical, um, which is kind of a an interesting twist on our episodes. Usually, we stay high level, but this was really interesting how he dives into the dual chemistries and uh, the processes, and just even the development of new materials. So, yeah, that was something that I would. Definitely recommend tuning into. What about you?
1: Yeah, I think that just it's a unique experience to be able to talk to an SVP just because they have the technical know-how to obviously get to that level, but they really have the entire vision because they are the ones driving it. And so they are in a unique position to kind of shape how we use this novel technology. It's really interesting picking his brain and hearing what he thought about the technology, the limitations, the benefits, and then finally the applications. And so he was just done like such a unique place where he knows everything, he controls so much that he gives great insight and really is just an experience that gives a lot of deep learning to the application that we're talking about. So I thought it was a super interesting conversation the entire time.
0: Yeah. Um, And speaking of deep learning, I mean, Machine learning, uh, AI, I think that also kind of came back to this conversation like it has with previous episodes. But this one is really cool because they talk about the design engine software that Carbon released and how that's kind of like publicized now and available for um, even like students and and. Uh, individuals to use in, in addition to how they implement it to create their own products. So um, that was cool as a different twist. Usually we emphasize, you know, the importance of computational material science, ML, AI, and its potential in this industry, but to see it kind of make its real world impact and be used today was also really cool. So yeah, a lot to look forward to in this episode. Make sure to leave a rating and review for us. It would really help us out. And yeah, let's get into the
1: episode. Hey everyone, we are super excited to welcome today's guest, Dr. Jason Rolland, Senior Vice President of Materials at Carbon. As SVP of Materials, Jason is tasked with creating the broadest possible range of materials for growing 3D objects with carbon's DLS technology. Previously, he was also the Senior Director of Research at Diagnostics for All and also co-founded Liquida Technologies. Jason holds a BS in chemistry from Virginia Tech. And a PhD in chemistry from UNC Chapel Hill. On top of holding twenty-five current and pending patents. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jason. Super excited to talk to you.
0: Really happy to be here. Thank you. Seems like we have some like location commonalities here. Like David's from Virginia, and then I'm from North Carolina. So you've kind of like yeah, there's that similarity there. I have a lot of friends at UNC, but that that's kind of besides the point. Um, we'll, We'll get into carbon's technology. So you use 3D printing to produce end use products at scale, such as uh, 3D printed midsoles for Adidas or 3D printed inserts for Rawlings baseball gloves. So they're very cool products, but they start off as like a liquid polymer called uh, polyurethane. And so I was just wondering if you could kind of talk us through this material, the properties and where we may see polyurethane in our daily lives.
2: Yeah, sure. So um... Polyurethanes were, were invented quite a while ago. I think, likely in the fifties or sixties, and and one of the there's a couple of key key attributes that they have. One of them is just the the versatility of of the polyurethane class of materials. By changing the building blocks, you can have everything from a really soft, stretchy elastomer all the way to a very, you know, rigid, tough, high impact strength uh, type of material. And so they were, um, as a class of materials, it was very appealing to us uh, when we first started building out our material portfolio because of that versatility. So you you, you would encounter polyurethane materials in all kinds of places. So maybe the, the most, um, recognizable place would be, um, you know, foams. And so soft, cushy foams, like in your uh, automotive seating or in your mattress or in your pillows, uh, you know, ranging to, you know, there's foams in refrigerators that help insulate things. And so those are all uh, generally made of polyurethane. Um, and this includes some of the benchmark materials that we were up against. you know Boost is a really famous uh, midsole material from adidas and that is a uh, made of polyurethane pellets that are, are then uh, fused together during production. And so Boost would be a, a polyurethane foam with very, very high energy return. Other places you might encounter spandex. Uh, so spandex fibers are uh, another really famous uh, brand name of, uh, of a polyurethane. So again, that stretchy uh, type of fabric. And on the rigid side, uh, some some other applications that you might not be aware of. So, bowling balls actually have a significant amount of, of wow. polyurethane in them, um, as well as uh, skateboard and, and rollerblade wheels. Uh, those are made from cast polyurethane, more on, uh, obviously on the rigid side in that case. So, yeah, as a class of materials, they're extremely useful,
0: extremely widely used in a, in a range of industries. Interesting. So I, I was just wondering, you you mentioned the range of polyurethanes from flexibility to rigidity. What exactly about the material allows for, for that versatility? Is it like the cross-linking like extents that creates that rigidity or is it like the rigid, maybe like rigid pendant groups? I don't know. I'm just trying to tie back to my polymer science class. Yeah, experience. no, great. <laughs> great question. And
2: in fact, it, it goes back to the origins of, of polyurethane and I'm not super. Uh, I'm not an expert on the history there, but uh, you know, rubber materials are generally, you know, natural rubber materials are, are crosslinked. So this is work done by um, you know Goodyear and others uh, uh, early on, where you can take natural rubber from, from trees uh, or, or synthetic polyisoprene and crosslink that with with sulfur compounds. But once you crosslink that, that object, even though it's a, an elastomer, it's it's now a thermoset meaning that when you heat a car tire, it will not flow, it will not melt, it will burn before it melts. And so this is, is a limitation. It means it's, it's, it's tricky to process these materials and, and tricky to make forms out of them. Uh, polyurethanes, or at least a, a subcategory of polyurethanes, are, are what is called a thermoplastic elastomer, meaning that it is an elastomer just like natural rubber, but it can flow when heated. And so the way that, that polyurethanes do that is you have what's called a hard segment and a soft segment. And so your hard segment will have a very high TG and you have these sort of short runs of really it all comes down to hydrogen bonding. So you have these short runs in your polymer chain of these hard segments, and those will crystallize together and are uh, aligned together. They'll pack together and they form what's called a physical crosslink. link. Um, so you have that instead of a, a covalent bond crosslink and then you have your soft segment of your polyurethane, and that is typically has a very low TG. And so at room temperature, you're above the TG of uh, the glass transition temperature of the soft segment, and you're below the TG of the hard segment. So you have uh, this nice stretchy uh, rubber material. So uh, I guess the analog in natural rubber, that material wants to flow because you're also above the TG, but it's held together by chemical crosslinks with covalent bonds, whereas polyurethane, thermoplastic polyurethane elastomers are held together by these physical crosslinks. Now, in terms of versatility, so you can change the chemical identity of your soft segment. You can change the molecular weight of your soft segment, um, and that will dramatically alter the properties of that resulting polyurethane material. Um, You can also change the hard segment chemistry. So this all comes from um, isocyanate chemistry. And so there's a a variety of of different flavors of isocyanates that that one can put in the polymer and each one results in in, uh, different properties. And so you can play a lot of mixing and matching and formulation work to kind of fine tune the polyurethane material for,
1: for your application. So I think that was a great explanation of how we can modify the polyurethane that we call into multiple forms, but maybe a broader view is for carbon specifically, you're trying to 3D print it. So with that in mind, what are some of the specifications that you change to 3D print it and what are important and maybe also why polyurethane versus other materials that could be uh, 3D printed?
2: Yeah, excellent question. So this gets to kind of the core of our big technological breakthrough around materials at carbon. And so historically, I sort of divide the world of 3D printing into two major categories. On one side, you have categories of printing that use thermoplastics and and use heat to either fuse uh, powder particles or extrude filaments in order to make an object. So so you have this whole area and that would include your FDM type of printing. So your sort of MakerBot type of 3D printers your SLS. So that's selective laser sintering. So this would be your powder-based systems like the HP machine or, or the more typical SLS machines. Uh, so that's that's thermoplastics. And there you have the advantages in that you're using known thermoplastics like nylon and ABS and, and PLA. And so they're materials that people are, are familiar with, but you also have uh, resolution challenges there in that you're, you're limited to you know, this the how thin of a bead you can extrude or or how small of a, a powder particle you can make and how consistent that is. And so you can always, if you go to a 3D printing trade show, you can always pick up a part and immediately tell if it's made by FDM or by SLS. They just have a, a characteristic look. On the other side, uh, you have 3D printing technologies that use liquid UV curable resins. And so this would be categories like there's inkjetting methods um, like a a polyjet where I'm I'm inkjetting a UV curable resin in a layer by layer format. Or you have your your typical stereolithography categories where uh, you might have a VAT SLA where you have a large VAT of UV curable material and you're sort of making this pattern with lasers. Or you have the, you know, what are called DLP systems that make use of these uh, digital optics. And so, Long story short, the the UV curable side of of the house of 3D printing can get you really great resolution that looks on par with with injection molded parts. And that's because you get to use these advanced digital optics that have resolution in the range of 25 to 75 microns, these little pixels of light that you can fine tune as you're doing your printing. But the problem is the materials that, that have been traditionally used in liquid UV curable printing, they all come from the coatings industry. And so there are mixtures of oligomers and acrylates and methacrylate oligomers and, and what are called reactive diluents, which are basically just monomer forms of acrylates and, and methacrylates. And so you blend all those together. And so you'll get a really nice looking part, but it's often very brittle um, compared to your typical thermoplastic materials. And that's because these are often very highly cross-linked UV curable networks and, uh, and, and the resulting properties can be quite brittle. And so we were looking at this problem in the early days of carbon, and and again we, we had aspirations to go into production, so like like midsoles and you know make consumer facing parts. And so we um, we decided to go a different direction and use what are called dual cure chemistries. And so we looked around, and and, and if you're going to confine yourself to, you know, these UV curable chemistries, you really have a pretty limited scope of materials that you can work with. There's only so many things that you can, you know, put acrylate and methacrylate groups on, and uh, you just have a limited range of, of chemistry that you can access, and therefore a limited range of properties that you can access. And so we were looking around and, um, you know, started to, to think about you have a lot of thermally curable chemistries. So, you know, a two part epoxy adhesive that you might buy at the hardware store, or a, a two part silicone sealant that you also might buy. These are all chemistries that have a part A and a part B, and, and they can react. And polyurethanes can also um, fit into that framework where you have a part A and a reactive part A and a reactive part B. And there's a much larger, you know, versatility of of functionalities and properties that you can access with the thermally curable materials. And so we started to explore ways of combining UV curable chemistry with thermally curable chemistry. And so we would have these resins, again, that are dual cure. So basically we take reactive chemistries like a polyurethane, a two-part polyurethane, and then we add, and you, it's, it takes some skill to kind of shuffle around the formulation components, but our formulations will have a part A and a part B, and we have the UV network mixed in, and we have the, the, the reactive thermally curable component as, as the, the part B. and so. Um, we we kind of have these in cartridges, again, like you, you see at a hardware store, and they go through what's called a static mixer, which basically just folds the two parts together um, as it dispenses. And so you get really nice mixing, actually. So we mix all of this together as it goes into the printer. So then I start my printing process, and I'm projecting UV light in various patterns on a, a layer-by-layer basis and building this part. And so while I'm doing that, I'm activating my UV curable chemistry that I have in there. So I'm forming this initial network that's defining the shape of my part. And in the process of doing that, I'm actually entrapping the thermally curable chemistry in that initial network. And so I have uh, the part in what's called a green state. Uh, so it's, come, it's, it's done printing. It looks like the part that I printed, but I'm not done yet. And so then I will, I will clean the residual resin off. We have a, a variety of ways to do that. And then I take the part and I put it in the oven. And when I do that, now I actually begin to uh, cross-link and, and activate that secondary thermal network that again is entrapped in that initial UV network. And I get what is, was known in polymer science as an interpenetrating polymer network. So now I have, you know, and when I'm finished baking, now I have basically two sets of of different chemistries that are in my part. And so this is really cool. So um, this is a technology that's been used in uh, coatings before, but never really applied in the world of 3D printing. And so when we started to look at this again, we we had eyes towards the the running shoe market actually, because it was sort of recognizes this big opportunity in 3D printing that if you could figure out how to make really great materials that met the requirements for running sneakers, but also uh, could fit in a, a manufacturing workflow and print fast enough, which is another important innovation that, that we did on the hardware side. You can print these materials fast enough that to be relevant from a production standpoint, then you could start to get into kind of mass production of, of 3D printing parts, which is what we wanted to do. And so looking at this problem, we, you know, we started to look in at, well, hey, we want to make polyurethanes. We know polyurethanes work as a class of materials in this application. Well, let's just figure out a different way to make the actual polyurethane chains rather than trying to make some other material that comes close but doesn't quite you know, meet the bar. And so that opened up this, this whole world of, uh, of polyurethane elastomers again, because now we have access to the thermally curable components. And I can put those in as precursors in my liquid resin and during that thermal bake, I can actually chain extend to really high molecular weight polyurethane. And so that's how our process works. And so, yeah, we had to look at polyurethane in a new way and kind of disassemble the polymer and figure out how to reassemble it uh, only using 3D printing. Wow. And this allowed us to get into, you know, it, it, a lot of properties depend on, on critical molecular weight um, in the application it allowed us to get to those high molecular weights that achieve um the durability the uv stability the hydrolytic stability and all the other parameters that go into to solving for a, a running running shoe application wow
0: yeah i that was like so much but i was so cool <laughs> yeah, as well no no, no <laughs> I, I loved it i I just wanted to ask Dave, do you remember from our, like our ceramics class, how are we talking about like green state and then like how you have to like refine it? It's just really cool to see kind of like the polymers and the ceramics principles kind of now like intermingling. I've never really seen that before, but the concepts are cool. You mentioned the, the critical molecular weight. I'd like to dive into that a little bit. Can you elaborate on why exactly it's important for like the end use application kind of adding that context to that critical molecular weight. So there's a concept called the, the, the critical entanglement
2: molecular weight where above a certain molecular weight your chains are long enough to entangle and th- there's a, a really famous plot that it's basically I don't know there's probably a dozen or so properties that fit into this if you have the property x on the y-axis and molecular weight on the x-axis um, you have this initial rapid rise and then it comes sort of a plateauing. And where that curve plateaus is your critical entanglement molecular weight. And so why that's important is for things like fatigue. Um, if you kind of zoom in and, on the cartoon version of this, as you're r- routinely flexing these materials, um, if you have those entanglements, um, it adds a toughness and durability to to the polymer chains. If you don't, then you start to degrade them and, and put a lot of forces on them and they, and they eventually start to break and then your your structure will break down. And so this this, uh, sort of getting to that that critical molecular weight threshold is key. Other properties that that have this, uh, impact strength is a big one, tear strength I believe is related. And so uh, there's a whole lot of really important you know, polymeric properties that uh, that we care about and that end consumers care about as well. You know, you don't want your the lining of your football helmet to fall apart after one game. You know, you want to, want to keep that going for a few years. <laughs> Same with your running shoes. They have to hold up for a, a period of time. So, you know, and actually our, our partners will put these materials and components through, you know, a lot of durability testing. And that, that, that's critically important for validating the material. So,
1: yeah, so, but it all comes down to the molecular weight. Think about you explained there's like your normal 3D printing with the you melt filament, et cetera, or SLS. Those seem to be more limited by what filaments can be put in due to the processing conditions. Could you elaborate more on how your new novel technique allows you, like, it sounds like five times or right? like, magnitudes of order, greater variability in your final product.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's pros and cons there. I mean, on the the pros for the thermoplastics is a lot of times you're having conversations with, you know, a potential customer or user, and they have maybe been using glass filled nylon in an automotive component for a really long time. And all their parts are validated to the properties of glass filled nylon And we might have, say, a dual-cure epoxy-based resin that has a lot of similar properties to that material, but might fall short on a few things. And, you know, it's just fundamentally a different type of chemistry. And so you're often having to go through this validation testing and have these conversations of, okay, well, what properties are most important to you? And, okay, well, here's our material that has those properties and let's validate them. So there's a, a conversation that needs to happen to kind of pull people away who, who maybe, well, I've always used nylon, like, why can't I just keep using that? And so the material has to fit into our framework of, you know, it has to be within a certain viscosity range, for example, in our printer. Um, it has to, you know, cure fast enough uh, so that we can hit relevant print speeds. It has to have a high enough green strength so that it holds together and, and we can have high accuracy parts during printing. So it, it's a, it's a complicated equation, but what you have working for you is now I have the whole landscape of UV curable chemistry and a whole landscape of thermally curable chemistry that you know my team can now access. And they you know a lot of what we do is just mapping out formulation space, and we have a lot of software and, and statistical analysis tools that we can use to do that. But you just have a lot of choices, and you have a lot of options, and you can you can go in and finely tune the materials. Uh, for a specific application. So sort of pros and cons. so but we are creating um, a lot of new materials that 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 um, you know haven't existed before, certainly not in the in the space of additive manufacturing. And so it, it makes it exciting to have those conversations because you can sort of, hey, look, I, I, I have the impact strength, I have the right modulus, I have the right tear strength for all these properties let's go and try and validate it in your, your application
0: got it so from the application standpoint i'm just curious did you develop the technology with those applications in mind like the adidas midsoles and, and the Rollins baseball glove like how early on in the process was that like part of the vision it's a really great question it's actually something we talk about all the time
2: the initial elastomers for the adidas application were definitely uh, designed specifically for that application so this required working really, really closely with the Adidas team and with their validation test and, and going through lots and lots of iterations. And we found that process to be really valuable. And you, you have this idea in product development of adjacencies. And so if you can solve for a particularly hard application, it's likely that your material will work in other applications as well. And we saw this play out where hey, we solved for running shoes. And then uh, specialized comes along and they want to make bike saddles. And so, you know, well, hey, we ha- they use polyurethane foam currently. Let's try our polyurethane lattice. And it happens to have very similar properties there. You have other adjacencies. If you solve for automotive, it's a big one. If you can solve for interior automotive, there's a lot of adjacent applications um, that, that will work for that. And so, in the early days of the company, actually we we took a more generalized approach where we had a you know sort of a blank whiteboard of materials and okay what do we want to make and okay well let's make an elastomer and then let's make a rigid and tough material and then let's make a material that has high temperature and you know a a good balance of other properties and so we started started to just populate this formulation space with you know, uh, properties, combinations of properties that we thought customers would find interesting and useful. And then, uh, you know, we started to shift towards, as we started to go to more and more production applications, it is a much different problem to make a generic elastomer that someone can just use for for prototyping or functional prototyping versus something that's very tailored specific for, for an application. And so now we've started to move to this model where um, we're engaging with customers really early on in the process and starting to do this sort of that that same type of validation and reformulation, validation, reformulation type of work, so that we know when we launch a product that we have validated applications for it, but we also expect that it's useful for things way outside of those applications as well. And so our, our philosophy on that has shifted over time. And I think if you wanna be serious about production in 3D printing, you have to do that. If you're just trying to make a prototyping tool, it's actually less important. Then you might just, okay, here's an elastomer, here's a different elastomer with this durometer, or here's a different rigid material that has slightly different properties. But if you wanna go into production, um, it, it's very key. And if you look at you know the website for a company You know, like Sabic that makes nylon. You'll see they have hundreds of different grades of you know very very small iterations on nylon, and that's all because someone came in with an application and said, "Well, I needed to do this," and say, "Okay, well let's let's tweak it a little bit," and so you know we we expect at some point to have a a variety of materials at that level
0: where no matter what a customer wants to do, that there's a material that meets their application. That's super fascinating. I. Kind of anticipated that there it would be like applications driven like early on, but it's cool that there was also like applications that kind of derive from that or like your materials could fit other applications um, just because there was that need in this space. Um, but now I wanted to kind of talk about a recent carbon development, which is a plastic material that is completely flame retardant. And so that is fascinating because usually, like plastics, are kind of thought to like melt or degrade at high temperatures. So, what kind of possibilities does that open up? Um, this this flame retardant material that wasn't previously possible in in this space or, or within carbon.
2: Yeah, no, that, it, it's it's a great question. So, just to just to clarify what that phrase "flame retardant" means. So, there's different levels of that. And the highest of that being a level called the V0. And so the the way they run these tests are, um, you know, it's it's, it's kind of what you'd expect. You have a a test bar and then you apply a blowtorch to it for a period of time. And then you pull that blowtorch away and you look at how long it takes for that flame to go out. And so a V0 rated material will um, almost immediately extinguish as soon as you remove that flame. And that's what our, our new epoxy 86 fr product does and so uh, this is useful in terms if you think about you know if you had a, a short in your servers you have these electrical enclosures that are typically made of flame retardant materials that can sort of contain that 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 fire so it's not like it's wrong to picture something like steel that, you, that is just like impervious to fire so the material is degrading but it's not igniting and and when when that that source of flame removes it, it completely self-extinguishes and so um this is a, a category of material that we worked on for three years actually and uh it was really challenging because I always uh, I always draw the analogy to a lot of what my team does is sort of like solving a Rubik's cube. <laughs> so each, each face of the Rubik's cube is sort of uh, one property um, that you're trying to solve for. And it's typically easy to kind of solve one or two, and then the rest are all messed up. And so you're often having to go through these formulation mapping exercises and, and working through the algorithm to solve for the entire picture. And so in this case, we were trying to solve for, we wanted a V0 rating for uh, flame resistance, um, but we also wanted something that was functionally tough that, that met the other requirements. So we had a material that's also a, a dual cure epoxy called EPX82, which has been a really great workhorse material for us. And, uh, and we, we started to think about ways we could tweak the material uh, that material to make it um, flame resistant. And so, with some uh, monomer changes and, and a lot of formulation work, we were able to find that balance of V zero rating with functional toughness, uh, meaning it has decent impact strength, it has great thermal stability, so it has a, a TG above one hundred and twenty C, but it also has a high modulus and, and just good workable properties. So, for you know, when you picture things like electrical connectors or electrical enclosures, those can't be super brittle, you know, just because they're they're FR rated. And so, uh, so that's, that's sort of how we arrived on that. But, but yeah, it's a really unique material in its class because there are other FR materials within 3D printing, but they tend to not have the toughness that we're able to achieve with, uh, with the 86FR product. So
1: when we talk about applications being driven and you've been working on it for so long, I guess, why would a polymer that's flame retardant be useful in industry? Or what would the applications be other than a server? Is that really like a driving or are there other applications you can apply
2: it to? Uh, so, you know, you think about a lot of medical equipment or, or um, hospital equipment. You know, if, if you have some of that that, that, that catches fire, you know, that, that can be a really big problem. So that's important there. There's um, aspects of the transportation industry generally, whether it's automotive or trains or um, aerospace uh, where, where VR materials or FR materials uh, are really important. And uh, yeah, so those are sort of the main areas where industrial applications, automotive, aerospace, transportation, those types of things.
1: Now that you walked us through like that development cycle, you've talked a lot before about or the Rubik's cube analogy is that you have to tune your polymers. And so for polyurethane, especially, mm-hmm. there's different products because its building blocks can be interchangeable. Carbon takes us one step forward, and you mentioned this, but it designs lattices to enable more tunability of the polyurethane products. Could you give us an example and maybe walk us through how that iteration works uh, on top of what you already do? Is just Changing the polyurethane itself?
2: Yeah, great question. So, you know, a great example that I like to point to is if you take a standard bike saddle, um, they usually have a cover on it, and you take that cover apart, you'll see that there's actually maybe three or four different types of foam that are in that saddle. And it's often cut and taped together so that you have regions of differing stiffnesses. So, you know, uh, under the sit bones, you might want, uh, you know, more support than in the middle of the saddle, for example. And that speaks to something. That means the the only way you can change the properties of a polyurethane foam are by changing the chemistry of the polyurethane foam. So you have to make a different foam if you want to make it um, softer or stiffer. If you look at our saddle that that we make with with Specialized or Cell Royale or other companies, with the exact same material, we can uh, have a wide variety of, of different durometers, essentially functional durometers within the seat. So you can have very stiff regions where the lattice is very dense and you can have very soft regions where the lattice is, is less dense. I and mean, that, that matters a lot in terms of comfort um, and in terms of the transition from one zone to another, you can you can very nicely tune that with lattices. So we have um, an amazing computational geometry team here at Carbon and they have, we actually just recently launched our first standalone software product, uh, it's called Design Engine. And so using that product, and you actually uh, standalone, what I mean by that is you don't have to have a carbon printer to use this software. You can just download it and start playing with it. So from there, you can input a solid part uh, in, in the form of a CAD model, and you can uh, input the types of mechanical properties, the compression profile that you might want from a lattice. And it will go through um, this computational algorithm and generate a lattice for you that meets those requirements. Um, and which is really, really cool. And so what, what's fun about that is that you know it's probably one of my favorite things about carbon is you have software engineers and hardware engineers and, and material scientists all working uh, side by side and, and kind of often looking at the same problem and coming up with very, very different approaches to solving that problem. And so when you can combine those types of fields, just a lot of magic happens. And so we often look to you know, solve lots of different types of problems using software, whether that's mechanical compression response using lattice generation or even changing the way a material prints, you can change the properties of the end material by, by adjusting the, the software algorithm in the printer. Uh, and so there's a lot of close collaboration between my team and, and the software team and other teams at Carbon uh, to make all that work. But yeah, that's really one of the key, you know, powerful aspects of lattices is the tunability. And so this design engine project will, what product will uh, generate your lattice. And then you can also uh, adjust the transitions uh, between those different areas. And you can, you know, have different uh, densities of lattices, different types of lattices, and different parts of the same
1: overall same object. And so you say that you work with software and hardware engineers. And one thing that's really interesting is this algorithm sounds fantastic, but whenever you build an algorithm, you have to validate it. And I think that would fall on you specifically. So as a science or a leader in general, what is your philosophy on validating like new technology such as this in the most efficient way possible?
2: Yeah, that's also a really, really great question. We run into this a lot because when you go into production, our customers who are you know, manufacturing these products, they will validate a material, they will validate a geometry and they'll validate a workflow. And any deviations from that means it has to be revalidated. And that becomes especially problematic in the medical space where you would have, you know, the FDA approves a device. They don't approve materials. They approve devices. And so if you change aspects of your material or geometry, depending on the the degree of change, you may have to revalidate. So um, the way we do this is we have the, the, the ability to selectively lock. We basically call them lock builds. And so our customers will go through, you know, various design, you know, they they go through a lot of prototyping and functional prototyping and validation. It's actually one of the powerful aspects of 3D printing is that you can screen, you know, a hundred different designs in a matter of weeks. Whereas if you're trying to do that by any other method, you're having to either cut tooling for each of those designs or do subtractive manufacturing to, to change your designs. And additive allows you to do that very, very fast. And so you could do that very, very fast and arrive on your um, optimized geometry, and then you lock it. And then you can lock your workflow, but we can also lock the um, printer algorithm for that particular build so that... Even as our software continues to upgrade, that particular build will not, and it will print the, the same way that it always has been. So again, it, it's very, very helpful to have a flexible um, software approach. So one of the decisions we made early on in the company was to have the printers network connected, meaning that they can receive over-the-air uh, software updates. And we will ship these periodically, you know, every four to eight weeks. And, um, you know, just like your phone updates or cars are updating now, our printer updates, and gets better and better over time. Uh, but this did create that same problem you're pointing to as a customer. going, Wait a minute, I'm in production with this build. You know, you have to let me keep my properties the same. And so we have solutions for that as well.
0: Interesting. So what is your vision then? Because David and I have heard in several previous episodes, just the, the potential of like computational material science, machine learning, and AI in, in this space. What is your vision? Because this design engine product seems really fascinating, really cool. Uh, what does that look like? How is that going to be developed five years down the line? You know, and just um, what can that evolve into?
2: Yeah, I think one of the, the big visionary things that is, is necessary is a to make more and more students and young professionals aware of these tools. Because mechanical engineers will tell you that they, they're taught all of the rules of injection molding in school. And so when they go to design a part, when they get a, get a job at a company and they're asked to design a part, they do so thinking from those design constraints. And so there's a lot of education and awareness that we need to, to generate um, that, hey, additive has has reached the next level, and it can now create very high performance parts. And, you know, you haven't thought about the rules for lattice design, but here's all the great things that lattices can do. They can make lighter weight parts. They can make parts that manage heat management much better than a foam. And they can make parts that um, do energy attenuation in very different ways from foams and and, and other aspects. So there's a huge educational point of this, but yeah, it's super fun to start to think about. Merging of you know this sort of design flexibility in geometry with design flexibility in materials, and, and so my team uses you know sort of these uh, formulation statistical mapping programs to be able to map out the space, and and from you know running twenty different formulations, you can map out a very large property space, and I've often talked about you know it'd be really interesting to merge those two things, where for a given you know, performance or, or property input, you know, you output a combination of geometry and material. And so I think this that that's one of the places where this is all headed. But it, it really does allow you just such a, a versatility in terms
0: of your design. Now, kind of the main focus, I guess, of the episode. The thing I was looking forward to the most is the sustainability side that comes with 3D printing, just because there can be lots of waste generated from these processes, you know, like excess resin, chemical cleaning agents, et cetera. But carbon is implementing sustainable methods to kind of tackle these challenges. So can you just discuss that in, in more detail? Um, what is carbon doing to make 3D printing more sustainable?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this has been a, a big push of ours for several years now. So the, the types of things that, that carbon specifically is focused on, the first is the exact problem that you mentioned that three D printing, in particular, in that, that uh, liquid resin side of three D printing, does generate a lot of waste and, and can be very messy. And so this is something that that uh, we looked at again. With uh, your first application can help you solve a lot of a lot of problems. And so as we had eyes towards, okay, we have printers, we have materials that, that meet the requirements for running sneakers. Now we need to think about factory workflow and, and and how are we going, what do these processes look like? You very often find that if your sustainability needs and objectives are aligned with your economic needs, then things can, can go very quickly. And so we had both a sustainability problem in the form of, what are we going to do with this resin waste and cleaning with solvent, you know, kind of sucks and it, it generates a lot of hazardous waste and nobody really likes doing it. How can we solve that? And on top of that, it's expensive to dispose of hazardous waste. It's certainly expensive to waste resin um, that, that you, you know has gone through your whole supply chain. And so um, our mechanical engineering team started to think about different ways to clean parts. And one of the things they came up with was this spin cleaning technology. And so we have these spinners that um, that hold three of our large build platforms. And so uh, you can imagine, you know, the printer platform goes in, your, your parts come out, and they're dripping with resin. You take that platform and you put it in the spinner, and then you do the same with two others. And then you close the lid and you turn it on, and this thing starts to spin very quickly. I think it goes up to about 600 RPM. And that action by centrifugal force, you're, you're driving all of that excess resin to the walls of the spinner. So it's sort of this uh, cylindrical shaped device. You put your platform in and then you, you start spinning. So all of the excess resin gets you know flown off to the, uh, the edges of this. And then it's designed so that we can collect all that and then you know fill up a container with all that excess resin. And then that just goes right back into the printer. And so the parts that come out are very, very clean. And uh, they have this very thin film, about 50 microns or so of a residual resin that's still on the part. But the cool thing is you can account for that thin layer of resin in your design. So you can account for that. And so then again, and also because we're using dual cure technology, I take that part, put it in the oven, and that thermal chemistry activates. And out of it, I get a perfectly usable uh, part without ever using any kind of solvent to clean. Um, And so this solved a a major problem for us, both on the sustainability aspect, but also on, uh, you know, our economics of of production that um, get get much, much better when you start to factor in resin recovery and uh, elimination of solvent cleaning. So this is one big area. We use this type of cleaning in um, all of our high volume applications, uh, which would include the, the midsole applications. It includes our helmet padding applications, the bike saddles. Um, And we even use it in our thermoforming business. So uh, going to a completely different industry for uh, dental models, you know, same, same workflow. So we can print dental models, they're dripping with resin, you put them in the spinners, collect it. And again, that's an industry where, you know, every penny that you could, that that goes into uh, manufacturing that part matters. Um, So the spin cleaning technology has been really successful for us. And we actually run the numbers on how much waste we would have created in these types of applications and, and we're up to i think you know several thousand metric tons of hazardous waste that just never existed um, because we we do this by the, the spin cleaning t- approach and I, I for frame of reference uh, an olympic sized swimming pool is uh 2500 metric tons and so we're, we're well past an Olympic-sized swimming pool of hazardous waste that has just never been created. So that feels really good and, um, you know, again, has also helped us drive a lot of things to production. So that's sort of the first thing we're doing on uh, related to cleaning. A second major focus for us is in the area of um, bio-based materials um you often hear these referred to as bioplastics or, or, or things like that this is a really hot topic in, in polymer science right now it's a really hot topic in industry where you know there's basically two sources of nearly all the chemicals that, that you think of certainly all the organic chemicals that you think of one is petroleum um, and many of the common plastics that, that we use every day polyethylene polypropylene those monomers are byproducts of, of the oil refining process and so there's something like all of the plastic annually made in the world is like five to ten percent of the oil that is uh, refined in the world. So this gives you a sense for the numbers of the amount of, the, of oil that's used. But that's a limited resource, and, and we all know the problems with with the carbon footprint and just the issues with with oil in, in general. Bio sources are a second major source, and so here you can use plants or microbes and fermentation uh, to create building blocks for polymeric materials. And so um, uh, one of the the products that that we uh, have have just recently announced is an elastomer called EPU-44. And this is our Gen 2 uh, elastomer material for the Adidas running sneakers. Um, It has a lot of performance advantages. It's a stiffer material, so it allows us to make lighter midsoles. It has very nice energy return, um, it has all the, the durability uh, aspects that we talked about, but it also has a much higher green strength than our Gen 1 material. And that allows us to make different types of lattice structures that otherwise wouldn't be printable. And so this has been really cool. So, But one of the, the other things that we did with EPU44 is we started to look at, remember we talked about the soft segment components mm-hmm. of polyurethanes? So. There's a company that makes a, a product called Systera. So the company's DuPont Tate and Lyle uh, and they have a monomer called Cistera, uh, which is basically just a 13 propane diol, uh monomer. and that monomer is derived from corn. so they can take corn, isolate the sugars and then refine the sugars to get to that 13 propane diol product. and you can then polymerize that to make a um, you know an oligomer of a polymer chain for your soft segment polyurethane. And that product's called PO3G. And there's a number of, of manufacturers that make that. And so we started to look at this product. Initially, um, we were trying to solve a viscosity problem. And the PO3G oligomer happens to have a much lower viscosity than the typical PTMO materials that are used at polyurethanes but it also had this really exciting bio-derived aspect to it. And so you can imagine you can make your products from petroleum, or you can basically make them from CO2 and sunshine uh, in the form of a plant and then have the plant, you know, the the machinery of the plant, you know, make your building blocks of your polymer for you. Um, And that's a much more sustainable process. It's a much lower carbon footprint on the overall material development. And so there's numbers from DuPont, Tate & Lyle that, it uses uh, it, 56% lower greenhouse gas emissions in the production of that material versus the standard you know, petroleum route. And so we saw this as a really exciting opportunity and uh, our partners at Adidas, they're incredibly focused on sustainability and It's a major aspect of their business. So it was sort of a win-win uh, for everybody. And so we incorporated this material it, where EPU44 is, is 40% by weight derived from this plant-based raw material. Um, We also have a rigid polyurethane material called RPU-130 that has about 25% by weight of this uh, uh, plant-based soft segment, and that's a very high temperature, high impact strength material. So one of the things I like to point to is you don't have to compromise your performance in order to go with the more sustainable approaches. So the plant-based raw materials are a really exciting focus for us, and we're looking to do, do more in that area. It also, we look at you know latticing itself, and part lightweighting, is um, ha- has a lot of uh, great aspects to it from a sustainability perspective, where, again, this reduction, just the, the, the simple reduction of the amount of material that it takes to make a part, that's a benefit in and of itself, because you, you've pulled out a bunch of material from the part. But also, in industries like you know, electric vehicles or, or vehicles in general, they look at every ounce of weight that goes into to that car or airplane or, or whatever it is. And the more that you can pull a material out of that and lightweight those parts, the more fuel efficiency you get out of that, that part. So latticing in general has this big opportunity in terms of you know uh, fuel efficiency and these types of approaches. There's other areas that it's sort of common to really all additive manufacturing and this idea of um, localized production. And so uh, basically you know, manufacturing the parts that you need, where you need them, when you need them can help reduce a lot of this transportation costs of you know, making resin in one country, shipping it over, injection molding parts in another country that are then packed up and then you know, put on boats or planes and, and move somewhere else. The supply chain, as we've learned, is incredibly fragile over the past couple of years, we've seen this, and additive manufacturing can play a major role in in solving those problems, but also in a more sustainable approach. Finally, we have um, a couple of uh, projects that we're working on in terms of recycling. Um, Recycling we could probably do another few hours on, but um, Recycling is another very hot topic, you know, both in academia and in industry, where people are realizing that the current way we go about this is pretty broken. And there's some really uh, different aspects. Um, there's a really exciting area called chemical recycling, where instead of just melt processing apart, you actually break it back down to the original monomers and then purify those. And then remake your polymer, and so you can, you know, get get to these closed loop type of systems. And so we have efforts in both mechanical recycling as well as chemical recycling uh, for within the space of 3D printing. So yeah, so that's just a, a very quick overview of, of some of our major efforts in uh, in sustainability. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. So it's, I mean, it's very evident that there's a lot of measures that Carbon is taking to just make the 3D printing industry more sustainable. And it's cool to see your partners are really on board with that too, especially Adidas. And so I guess we can kind of just like wrap up this episode and we'd love to hear your thoughts on why our MSE audience, our listeners should consider working for Carbon if they're interested in 3D printing. Yeah,
2: well, I, you know, I'm, I'm biased, but I think uh, it's one of the most exciting companies out there in the material science space. And I guess one aspect i mentioned is this, it's a very, very collaborative uh, company and we have to be collaborative because at the end of the day, all that matters is the part coming out of the printer. Nobody cares how clever the chemistry is or how amazing the code is or all the hard work that went into the machines. They care about the quality of the parts coming out of the printer. And in order for that to, to happen and to hit the right standards, we all have to collaborate together. So, you know, you have the opportunity to learn about, um, you know, very different fields in, in computer science and um, mechanical engineering. And, you know, we have a whole team just dedicated to the physics of the printing process and understanding that at a really deep level. So, that's one aspect is that the collaborative nature. From a material science standpoint, it, it, you know, my team gets exposed to so many different types of materials and chemistries. It's sort of, you know, you open up the polymer textbook and, you know, we're we're doing something, (laughs) whether it's elastomers or medical grade materials, or we have projects in bioabsorbable uh, materials, you know, it just kind of of covers the whole spectrum and it's it's never never boring. Uh, There's always (laughs) a a really interesting project or problem to to go work on. You know, and I, I think many of us got into material science because of the number of industries that you can impact um with this sort of base level understanding of how to make materials and how materials work and i think of carbon as sort of the the ultimate embodiment of that where you know it's a it's a magic box that will print whatever you ask it to and and that's pretty exciting and and the the range of industries that we get you know coming through the doors is fascinating to me so whether it's You know, a consumer products company um, making, you know, running shoes like Adidas or automotive components or medical devices or, you know, we've had people come in from tractor companies and, you know, just almost any industry you can imagine there's applications and problems that, that additive manufacturing can help solve.
0: Yeah, if we had another hour, I'd love to ask you more about like the medical grade stuff. <laughs> if I'm in that industry or like the Rawlings baseball glove, but maybe, maybe we'll do a part two sometime. But it was a pleasure having you, Jason. Um, we really enjoyed uh, learning about carbon and all the potential applications of polyurethane and just your technology as a whole. Well, thanks a lot, guys. This was super fun. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below, and if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.